on certain groundlessness. Navigating dizziness. Departure! Together. Hello, it's us again. Ruth. Leo and Sergio. After the last episode where we took an overview of what it could be, this dizziness that we are talking about all the time, in this episode we are looking into different manifestations of dizziness that we all feel and know very well. We will talk about dizziness in relation to space, specifically in terms of architecture and our environment, starting from the notions of gravity and balance. Our research scientist at the MIT Media Lab this is Dan Novi. Your first frame of reference when you're here, like you mentioned, is gravity, right? That sense, your proprioceptive sense, that gravity is toward the center of the Earth. And when you're dizzy, you lose even that. You know, it's this sense of, I don't even know where gravity is right now. Ben Spatz. So looking at the forms of knowledge, what knowledge is, uh, and more and more I'm looking at that through a decolonial lens, uh, as well as queer and feminist approaches to knowledge. There's an interesting physicality to dizziness and a sort of lack of orientation in the world that would then very much have to do with uh, situatedness or unsituatedness, embodiment and disembodiment and mediation, uh, and how, how we try to come to grips with the world and in doing so we actually constitute the we that would be trying to do that. Um, dizziness is interesting in the way that it has this physical component which makes it, um, yeah, it's kind of something that I'm, I'm wrestling with. It's not merely disorientation but it's uh, there's a kind of sickness to it maybe, like a nausea, a feel sensation of unpleasantness that's very bodily and uh, makes me think of um, the vulnerability of, of, of the body, of disability, of, of sickness uh, in that moment of disorientation. What happens to our ideas of disorientation and trying to get oriented if we add in this kind of vulnerability and um, the care that needs to be taken for the actual living organism that is trying to cope? Well, keeping our bodily balance is a continuous performance, but this performance is something that we do not notice. Usually we become aware of our ability to be balanced only when we are disrupted. In the very moment we lose our balance, stumble and fall. So at that moment when the relation between the body and the surrounding world is disturbed, changed in an unforeseeable and very often undesirable way. And we tend to perceive dizziness as the disruption of the normal flow of things. And we tend to take being in balance as the norm which is based in our sense of gravity. Well, when we are born, we leave the low gravity space of the womb where we develop and gravity becomes our main force of attraction. We share this sense of gravity with all living beings on this planet, from microorganisms to plants. We all orient and move in relation to this attractor. It is clear that no invention or innovation is thinkable without the sense of gravity. It is the reference point, 
our implicit orientation for our bodies, all living and non-living bodies, and all actions on this planet, as well as any invention or technological innovation that breaks ground. To feel grounded, to cover ground, lose ground, or find common ground, are just a few of the many, many metaphors that show how predominant gravity is, not only in our bodies, but also in the structures of our communication, organization and thinking. We learn what balance and gravity are not from concepts, but from experience, such as falling and spinning. This is also why we love to spin as children. Your body understands before you do. It may not like it, or it may fight with it, but it understands before you can control it. This is not a logical thing. This is not something that you understand seated, reading a book. It's something else and it involves uh, a body experience and it makes your heart beat and it makes your belly... Gabriela Carniero da Cunha. I am a Brazilian artist. Not all of us are going to experience deep sea or space exploration as Dan Novi suggested in the former episode. But we all experience dizziness as kids playing in carousels and swings. We seek to get dizzy when we go on amusement park. We experience vertigo climbing on top of high buildings or mountains. And we also experience some kind of vertigo looking up to tall buildings and high places and feel fear. Vertigo when watching the tightrope walkers. This kind of height vertigo challenges our sense of gravity. We are not often reminded of the fact that balancing is not learned by rules or concepts, but by doing with our bodies from childhood on. But how does this relate to our built environment and architecture? I am Davide de Rio, and I'm a reader in architectural history and theory at the University of Westminster in London. Starting from the notion that vertigo and dizziness are very, concept, very complex concepts, they, they cover a broad range of meanings. Dizziness um, is a kind of disturbed sense of relationship that we have to space. In other words, there are environmental conditions that make us uh, feel dizzy. And this is very much to do with the built environment as well, and the way in which we experience architecture and urban space. We met Davide years ago. His work on the issue of vertigo and architecture is really inspiring, and he leads a kind of sister project that is called Vertigo in the City, an interdisciplinary research group on vertigo in relation to city environments. With Davide, we would like to look at what our relation to environments can mean. How does the environment, and maybe let's start with the built environment, influence us? In modernism, the city as the paradigm of built environments has become the stage of our lives. Or the other way around, our lives are staged in the mise-en-scene that the cityscape provides. It allows certain bodies to move in certain directions, and it denies or opens certain perspectives for certain groups or individuals. When we think of the visceral experiences of vertigo and dizziness, we register that we don't experience dizziness only when looking down into an abyss, 
but also when we look up at objects of great heights. Height and depth are also metaphorical and organizational spaces of our collective imagination and dreams. But again, vertigo and dizziness disturb our relation to space. Modern architecture is also to do uh, with the conquest of the sky, with the kind of dream of uh, uh, reaching up to ever higher uh, places. Uh, so, uh, especially in the modern city, the modern metropolis is, is, is described as one of the categories: is the ability to construct uh, tall buildings. And so, you know, the age of the skyscraper, ever since the late 19th century, has brought about uh, a whole range of new experiences of space, which are both visual, but also they are very much. Uh, multi-sensory, they're visceral. I've also often felt uncomfortable in, in very high places. And uh, I guess uh, that is what prompted me to study this subject, also you know, my, my personal experience. But how to define this sensory experience in relation to architecture? And I've uh, come up with uh, with the notion of, uh, of architectural vertigo. It does uh, manifest through um, symptoms of dizziness. You know, we do feel dizzy uh, when, uh, when we are subject to vertigo. So there is a famous essay by Roland Barthes about the Eiffel Tower as a construction that transforms our visual experience of cities. Roland Barthes writes about the Eiffel Tower. It's true that you must take endless precautions in Paris not to see the Eiffel Tower. Beyond its strictly Parisian statement, it touches the most general human image repertoire. Its simple primary shape confers upon it the vocation of an infinite cipher, in turn and according to the appeals of our imagination. The symbol of Paris, of modernity, of communication, of science, or of the 90th century rocket, stem, derrick, phallus, lightning rod, or insect, confronting the great itineraries of our dreams. It is the inevitable sign. This pure, virtually empty sign is ineluctable, because it means everything. The tower acquires a new power, an object when we look at it, it becomes an outlook in turn when we visit it, and now constitutes as an object simultaneously extended and collected beneath it, that Paris, which just now was looking at it. The tower transgresses this separation, this habitual divorce of seeing and being seen. Who can say what the tower will be for humanity tomorrow? But there can be no doubt, it will always be something, and something of humanity itself. Did you hear that? An object, when we look at it, becomes an outlook in turn when we visit it. The tower transgresses the separation, this habitual divorce of seeing and being seen. He calls this phenomenon an architecture of vision. Primary purpose is not to, to, to offer spaces that can be inhabited for any particular function, but actually to allow people to get up to its various floors and in particular the top uh, gallery so as to embrace the view from above, so as to really encompass the city as a whole and enjoy that view as a, a panoramic uh, pleasure. Now, of course, you can say that the Eiffel Tower is, is a monument, is to be seen from everywhere, it uh, fulfills multiple uh, purposes and functions, but for Bart, really, it was an empty sign, it really didn't really mean much apart from this ability to 
um, to create a new field of vision. Isn't it interesting that at the same time the Eiffel Tower was being built, amusement parks like the one at the Prata next door here in Vienna started to be a mass attraction? Yeah, but all these rides and attractions are nothing but vertigo inducing, no? I mean, why are we looking for that? The joy of losing ourselves. Dizziness in that sense can get us into a state of euphoria. You know, as children, you know, a lot of us like to, you know, swing really high on the swing set or spin around really fast, you know, and, and enjoy that, that sense of dizziness before you get motion sick is yeah. exhilarating. Right? It, it's, it's an exhilarating state if you, can, if you can walk that very fine line of, you know, I'm getting the biophysical, biomechanical exhilaration of dizziness before it goes <coughs> over into, into nausea. Uh, so dizziness has also been part of our human cultures of play. And as you said, I mean, the 19th century is absolutely full of those, not least because I think um, that is the age of the conquest of nature. And we are talking about the colonization of the planet. You know, the, 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 you know, the first industrial age is very much about also, uh, you know, construction, constructing machines that make, make it possible to, to, to breathe space, to, 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 to build high, you know, to, to achieve you know, transatlantic communication, etc., etc. The, the architectural manifestation of that in terms of modern cities is the amusement park. You know, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, construction of entire settings, you know, think of Coney Island. Well, all those machines, those contraptions are brought together. And it's interesting, if you, if you, if you walk through a playground, and, uh, many of those uh, ch you know, ch children plays still today, they tend to be uh, plays which uh, challenge a sense of balance. You know, swings, sways, merry-go-rounds. And what if we transpose this whole concept to architecture? Then you realize that there is an architecture, Illings. Well, Illings, just a short insert here. Illings is a notion developed by French sociologist Roger Calois. Illings is one of the major categories of play. He defines this in his book Les Jeux et les Hommes. He mentions dizziness and vertigo as Illings can create a temporary disruption change of perception or be disorienting in direction of movement. But he also states that Illings is an enjoyable, even ecstatic form of dizziness. For me, architecture Illings is a category that I have developed, which begins to capture perhaps uh, this almost this obsession with, uh, with altitude that we've seen uh, around, uh, especially in you know, vertical cities. You don't need to go to a lunar park in order to to feel the ecstasy of dizziness. In fact, all you have to do very often is to be in a high-rise building or, well, for some uh, uh, people who really enjoy that uh, uh, thrill, there are uh, all kind of uh, tourist experiences, extreme tourist experiences, which entail, you know, walking on, on transparent surfaces, walking on the edge of buildings. You know, of course, bungee jumping has been around for quite a while, but actually, there are really more architectural uh, manifestations of this desire to feel vertigo, which is a kind of a, a kind of a kind of a, a kind of play, a form of play. As we started uh, this episode with <laughs> looking up and down, we are of course in the midst of a discussion of verticality. Vertical comes from the Latin vertere, to turn, to turn around, to change, but also to translate. And from this vertere 
both vertigo and verticality stem. Height was also, in, in antiquity, was related to power. You know, you have towers of the, of the castles, military outposts, the towers of the minarets, it's everything about power. Also from an artistic point of view, thinking of uh, Islamic book illustrations, for instance, we are always given Allah's view from the minaret that looks down to the earth or to people. And we are really accustomed to what used to be God's view in the monotheistic world. But uh, coming back at the end of the 19th century, high-rise buildings started to be built that eventually shape our contemporary image of a city. And the city is contemporary if there are high-rise buildings. That happened at the very same time the first skyscrapers were built in Chicago in the 1880s. So the skyscraper age began, and that is has been very much a part, a part of the narrative of modernity, where architecture plays a role in conquering the sky, in attaining ever new, ever greater heights. And yes, of course, opening up vistas on the surrounding landscape, but also uh, it becomes a narrative of progress, a narrative of power, a narrative where verticality becomes the new dimension of, uh, of cities that want to call themselves modern. I think over the past 20 years or so, what we see is something different, which is a much more deliberate attempt by designers, by architects, to embrace uh, vertigo almost as a design concept, almost as a principle. So vertigo is used as a term, vertigo-inducing spaces, vertigo-inducing platforms. These are terms that have become popular alongside um, a particular image culture where also we've seen a proliferation of especially photographs through the internet, social media, and various publications which tend to induce the supposed uh, thrill of heights. You know, photographs uh, taken from high places, looking down, supposedly uh, challenging the viewer to bear a very difficult, very problematic, sometimes unsettling uh, view of the space from above. You can't see a film, a video, a news item that does not in include footage from drones today. But drones also make specific sounds. And here we have a piece that we want to play for you. It's um, an excerpt by Ukrainian artist Mikhailo Mireneko, also known as DJ Mikhai or Strukturator. And his piece was recorded by him as a spontaneous reaction after a long pause that was caused, of course, by the war. It's an inspired moment when he had a short break from volunteering in the war.
Does the loss of the horizon line also mean the loss of a stable paradigm of orientation, which has situated subjects and objects spread out time and space throughout modernity? Could we equal the loss of the horizon with the departure of modernity and the reappearance of the abyss from the Middle Ages? You know, where the borders of the flat earth were looming for those who ventured too far? Who is the present-day Icarus? Cultural dependence from height, well, you get dizzy. On the other hand, we need heights to orient. But similarly, in architecture, you see this proliferation of uh, design platforms, things like you know glass floors, for example, walkways, but also uh, full-height uh, uh, windows, for example, or glass parapets in balconies. They become all the rage. They're absolutely ubiquitous. They're everywhere. And, uh, and they do play with our sense of balance. They do deliberately challenge, I think, our ability to uh, withstand the experience uh, of the abyss, especially when we get out there on the balcony or even when we, we decide we are brave enough to walk on a transparent, fully transparent glass floor at, uh, say, two, three, four hundred meters uh, as if we were suspended over the void. So if there's so much architecture and design around vertigo, how do designers see the effect of their vertigo-inducing buildings? No, but the question is, are architects, urbanists, really seeking the effect of dizziness or vertigo in people using or experiencing their buildings? Or is it always a side effect? Because, you know, it's only very recently that we still see some genuine attempt to engage with cross-disciplinary dialogues where designers concede that, you know, they just do not know much about how people experience space, you know, in terms of the, the fundamental physiological and psychological conditions of that. So um, if we reduce um, the experience of vertical to a kind of a playful challenge, uh, well, then, you know, we really have to admit that there's a you know, um, there's a profound gap there between what, what designers know and how actually people do experience space. It's a profound, profound ignorance of that, I think. That, that is a major problem. The first, the first epidemiological studies about height intolerance were only made a few years ago. Let's, let's think about that. We really know very little. So there's not uh, an awful lot of scientific data supporting um, a sort of a knowledge on that. But that doesn't quite excuse, I think, the, um, ne you know, the neglect of uh, you know, psychophysiological responses to space from the designer's side. You know. So, you know, I've talked to quite a lot of people about how, in fact, even 
for let's say professional climbers for example or people who are used on a daily basis with very extreme situations in confronting um, you know height uh, anything any anything can happen at any time of your life you just don't control those reactions you know there's a climber shared experience of being in precisely in that infinity pool in Singapore I mentioned and one day and being there swimming in the pool and completely freezing. This is the famous pool at the Marina Bay Sands Hotel in Singapore. Uh, the so-called freeze is the experience that uh, people have when they get completely stuck essentially and they are in such a state of panic that they, they cannot either go one way or the other no up no down and you know, very often they require someone to come and rescue them. So she was completely stuck in that pool. And we're talking about professional climber. So what happens in our brain? What happens in our body when we confront heights? We don't know. I mean, we do know that there are certain uh, conditions, but what we don't know is what triggers that because it could arise out of a number of different reasons. So in a sense, we're playing with fire because we don't quite know what, what's going to happen in those cases. And yet they become incredibly trendy and popular and uh, I think desirable especially in relation to the so-called experience economy. There are architects and designers who are involved in researching this phenomena consciously. For instance, Maria Auxiliadora Galvez-Perez. I am a PhD architect and landscaper, but I am also a Fellengreis teacher. Normally, there is still a lot of conventions about how a space should be, and it's always related to a standard body for Western, white, and so on. Uh, and with a healthy body. But um, if we can include some other questions like orientating the space without the predominance of vision, somehow this possibility of, of a kind of disorienting space give, um, give the floor to bodies with different capacities. We could talk also about dizziness in our structures of thought. When we started to work on dizziness, we worked closely together with the chief curator, Katrin Buchatrantov of Kunsthaus Graz. You know her from our first episode. Kunsthaus Graz itself is a remarkable building designed by Peter Cook in the 1960s. It is shaped like the cloud and the citizens of Graz call it friendly alien. The architecture shapes, of course, a lot of this um, experience also for the visitor. So as you describe it, the visitor enters and immediately loses sense of direction because he doesn't, he or she doesn't have any, any windows to orient at no angles. Uh, so there is already the sense of dizziness in the in the architecture. The architecture wants to create an open space. By the architecture, there is this offering of just creating a platform without any or with le less normation or with less straight uh, standards and so in a way the architecture is all, has always asked us to do this to work in a certain um, productive dizziness i think we kind of rushed through this very beginning of the contest of heights and how height and vertigo became kind of the watermark of modernity We can say that it is really 19th century engineering where all of this process begins. And architects took it up uh, a, bit, a bit later, towards the end of the 19th century, in uh, transforming the shape of cities in the cityscape. You know, starting in Chicago, then you move on to New York, and then of course in Europe, there are cities like, like um, 
Berlin, uh, which began really to, to grow also in height through the interwar period. And uh, this leads us, of course, to New York and Manhattan becoming in between the 1920s and the 30s as really very much the uh, sort of a, the vertical metropolis uh, par excellence. Before that, Hyde was a religious and military prerogative. Hyde's were an expression of power, frightening and awe-inspiring. It was throughout different cultures and centuries, for instance, in Maya's buildings, pyramids, clock towers, minarets, spaces that were not open to everyone, military constructions looking down, seeing the enemy from afar, but also to be looked up in awe at the power of the castle built on the peak of a mountain or a hill. Then also at the height of technical possibilities and to enable the lords of the castle to collect taxes from those who want to pass. But then at, at some point, Hyde is secularized and democratized. And this happens also quite simply when the elevator is, is invented by the artists, engineers who introduced in the 1880s. Uh, the lift, you know, it is a mechanical elevator that enables architecture to, to go to, to, to extreme heights which were not attainable before because you have to begin to allow people to move up and down by mechanical means. But there are not only technical reasons. We still build to great heights today for other reasons. So uh, there are technical reasons for that. There are economic reasons as well, of course. The construction of skyscrapers is driven by, by economic forces. There are capitalist uh, powers and institutions that uh, become more and more dominant in the construction of cities. And here comes also the symbolic aspect of vertical construction. But actually, more recently, we've seen uh, the phenomenon of uh, vertical urbanism becoming global. There are cities literally around the whole urban world which have embraced this paradigm of vertical it's almost as if in order to call yourself a, um, a city today, you had to have uh, you know, vertical symbols of that, you know, validating the status of a modern city. Is this uh, verticality and building high as much as possible a built-in feature of neoliberalism too? I think almost fashionable obsession with thrill, which is very much, I think, part and parcel of uh, our neoliberal society. And that is deliberate. That's not a side effect. That is, I deliberately want to design a space or a feature, a building or a structure, which is going to uh, push my user to the limit, which would have been absolutely terrifying no longer ago. But nowadays, they become accepted, become fashionable. They're exclusive, but they at the same time, they epitomize almost the, an elite vision of the world where I can do what I want, I can be up there, I can test my limits. I am not afraid of that. So it's about like from capitalism to neoliberalism. It's about privatizing everything. And, and it's interesting that richest people are interested in the highest heights, no? When you buy an apartment, a high building, the higher you go, the more expensive it is. And of course, we have Elon Musk. What's the other guy? Uh, Bezos. Jeff Bezos. So these are these guys showing that with their money they conquered the Hyde. That's neoliberalism. It's privatized. So Hyde and being able to endure vertigo is a status symbol. There's a notion that everything is possible. For me, neoliberalism really is also to do with the, uh, with the claim to liberate yourself 
from limits, including gravity. Gravity, of course, the force of nature that anchors us to the world, to the ground, to the earth. Well, what about just challenging that to those extremes that you said, you know, sort of going up in the sky? But in terms of architecture, I think we see that manifested in what I call the states of suspension. And I think it is possible that there is a connection there, which needs to be researched between the our kind of social moment of almost constant instability. You know, we're constantly told that we live in an age of and nothing is certain anymore. Everything is precarious. You know, work is precarious. The economy is unstable. Uh, you know, th those maybe fixed uh, reference points that uh, we used to have uh, are no longer there. And the architecture which expresses those values. You know, architecture is always been an expression of social values, of hegemony in society, politics, etc. The general hegemony of neoliberalism, the dominance of verticality is ubiquitous. I think of Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk and other tech billionaires traveling to space for the sake of it. Wealth is translated into height. So now the space race is a matter of money and not of geopolitical positions as it was in the 50s, 60s or 70s. Well, you know what? Artist Trevor Paglan did an amazing and somewhat failed work of art that connects precisely to this issue of space explorations that Sergio just mentioned. I look at an existing infrastructure and try to imagine the opposite of it and then make it, right? And so this was a project I was looking at space and satellites in that, that world of, you know, actually existing space flight, which is, you know, entirely militarized and always has been, always will be, just in terms of the capital requirements of it. And so I was trying to imagine, actually specifically, going back to Malevich, um, who I think was one of the first people to theorize satellites, but Malevich was theorizing satellites as artworks that would float between the Earth and the Moon and that you would see in the sky. So what was the intention of your project? I wanted to create a satellite that did nothing. And it was kind of the exact opposite of every other satellite that's ever been made, which is, you know, the, I mean, spaceflight in particular, I mean, talk about a meta-narrative of progress, you know, <laughs> like that in technology and innovation. I was like, let's do the opposite of that. What could we imagine a world in which spaceflight was not that? you know, and have it be one that is more an imaginary of a planet, right? And the boundedness of a planet rather than the kind of ideology of infinite uh, colonization and accumulation or what have you. Um, so that was the project. It was called Orbital Reflector. And we built it, you know, obviously to do a project like that, you, you have to collaborate with those spaceflight institutions, which are military institutions and our state institutions. We built this thing, we launched it, and make a long story short, the government shut down at that same time. So when the spacecraft was launched we needed to coordinate with the government to um deploy it and at that moment trump insisted on the congress funding a wall between the us and mexico um so, and that led to the government being shut down for about 
about a month and a half. And so, and that month and a half coincided with the moment that we actually needed to work with the government in order to, 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 to deploy this spacecraft. And so the, the spacecraft didn't deploy as a result of that. And so I guess for me, it was a very poetic end to that project, which was so much about trying to imagine this alternative infrastructure and this alternative to um, the geopolitical traditions of spaceflight. That is the difference between the vertigo we have when we look down and the dizziness we feel when looking up. Trevor wrote this nicely about orbital reflector. When we look up into the starry night sky, we tend to see reflections of ourselves. Yes, but as Trevor said, the conquest of space, that has also a nationalist approach. And here I see a connection. Um, and with that, I would like to draw back from the starry night sky and come closer to Earth and to what could be defined as the connection between the conquest of nature and the conquest of heights. Yeah, that made me think of people we look up to, like, let's say, the shaman, that is this crazy person who defies the natural order of things in order to give us the guidance. We want to feel as if we're part of something much larger as well. I mean, that is one of the most basic impulses of religion uh, in general, is, is that we are connected to something bigger. This is Dan Novi. And the shaman, or the crazy person, or whoever that we tend to put our, our eggs into their basket, we get a sense, or we, we define them as someone who is a step closer to that bigger uh, 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 universe. And in a way, we're a little bit jealous. We're a little bit like there. Somehow, if I could just be a little bit closer to the gods, or if I could be one step closer to being able to see universal truths, or if I could be, and we all sense it, we all get, we all get sort of instances of it in our life. And I think that's what sort of drives us. And when you meet someone that seems like they are on some kind of elevated spiritual path or that they have some kind of direct line to, you know, the unknown, that's when they start saying, oh, I should listen to this person. I want to subscribe to their newsletter. I'm going to vote for them. I'm going to, you know, and, and in a way it is, they are, they become a proxy uh, for our own spiritual needs. But Davide, what is the socio-political significance of this conquest of height and nature? I'm going to ask you to elaborate on what you see as the connection between the conquest of height and the conquest of nature and uh, their expressions in the built environment, in spatial design, and the ensuing appreciation of natural and built spaces. The conquest of heights, I mean, let's stay with that uh, expression, because I think it's something that we see in the mid-19th century very much as part of uh, spatial practice. It became really, really popular in, um, in Europe in particular and, uh, and across the Atlantic in North America. And we're talking about things like mountaineering. So the, the notion there, there are the, the great peaks of, uh, in particular, the, the Alps. 
that attracted lots of people who wanted to break new records, wanted to attain ever greater heights, being able to, in inverted commas, conquer uh, the peaks of, uh, of tall mountains. And at the very, very same time, and we're now talking about the 1850s, 1860s, uh, you know, funambulism becomes really a mass attraction. The figure of the tightrope walker or funambulist is very interesting when we reflect on the experience of, uh, of urban space today. Well, on the experience of space in general, and of course this is a very ancient practice or art, used to be called uh, rope dancing, and there were performances, you know, way back, certainly Europe from ancient Greece and so on. And, um, and it was often a practice that was performed for the privileged few, for the royal, for the court, for the aristocrats. They could, could hire um, funambulists to perform for their own pleasure. Um, but things change in modern times in relation to the conquest of nature and the force of gravity. Um, there is a reason why it is in the mid-19th century that the funambulist becomes really a, a, a superstar, say. You know, and these performances become really mass spectacles and they're staged not over a garden or a square or a river, but actually over the you know, place like Niagara Falls, so it's not the most uh, impressive and so also most dangerous places where you could fall from uh, in nature. Well, we can clearly make a connection here between the high rise with all the neoliberal and capitalist context we've been talking about and one of the most daring and significant performances of tightrope walking in history. I'm talking about the famous Philippe Petit, who walked the almost finished New York Twin Towers in 1974. In his walk, he sanctified the capitalistic side of the towers on one side, but also connected the height to its ultimate destruction and death. So, heights are symbols of power, we had that. And this kind of power attracts, of course, the desire of being regulated or restricted. Philippe Petit, much as these contemporary um, guys climbing the highest buildings, are perceived as subversive, and I think they want to be sub subversive. And usually they are arrested after they descend, as was also the case with Philippe Petit. So nowadays, and that's maybe the difference to a historical figure like him, their, their deeds are broadcasted live in social media just as if to stick a finger in the eye of power. Yeah, but they are still arrested when they get down. In the same way, Philippe Petit and his friends went up there without people realizing that they brought equipment for his stunt. in the audience decided Petit was better off in a police station, handcuffed securely to a chair. Why did you do this? Um, that's the thousand uh, why in this morning. There is no why. Just uh, because uh, um, when, when I see a beautiful place to put my why, I cannot resist. 
Sergeant Charles Daniels, who talked Petit off the high wire, called it a first-rate performance. He was bouncing up and down. His feet were actually leaving the wire, and then he would resettle back on the wire again. And then he would go down on one knee, and he'd balance the, uh, his uh, hand pole and lay down on his back and put his hands behind his neck and just completely relax and swing one of his legs over the wire in a carefree uh, manner. Was he laughing and smiling? Well, not when he would do that. He would just lay there and relax as if he wanted to just take a little nap. As spectacular sights go, how would you rate this one? Supreme. The apex of excitement. Well, Petit was not defying gravity, but conquering gravity. He was conquering vertigo and dizziness. Many stories around phonambulism can be seen to relate to existential experiences or can be read on a more existential level. Here for the phonambulist, the generative and fertile is already the existence of the abyss that can then be crossed or staged and the resistance to it can be performed. The phonambulist stages her or his act outside of the ordinary, but also outside of order, like a freedom fighter wanting to make palpable possibilities or even install a new and different order. For our podcast, we have invited Dani Gahl, whose artistic work addresses death, violence and societal progress. His work on violence includes political and systemic violence today, for instance, in contemporary Israel, as well as in other geographies and time frames. In the two-part radio play which he produced for us, Danny relates to the hour zero, that is when a war starts, and by extension, to ground zero, the rock bottom of the abyss in the aftermath of a catastrophe. That's a term that was also popularized by the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Danny's contribution starts with Camilla Maya, who is the central figure for the first episode of his radio play. Hour Zero was interesting to me when, when um, working on this podcast because uh, I was actually was the first time that I really looked at the meaning of this term. And it started because of this very interesting image that I'm starting the first podcast with a description of uh, a photo of um, a German uh, circus acrobat walking on a tightrope over the ruins of Cologne in 1946 and thinking that in a way walking above this what was called back then our zero which our zero for Germany meant from May 8, 1945, the day of uh, capitulation, the unconditional surrender to the Allies, a moment of uh, a radical or potential radical change and uh, from, the, from, from the Nazi past, the, the second that the, that the Nazism became a past and a moment of a radical escape from it, from a country that was completely destroyed. So, in a way, our our zero resonates interestingly with ground zero. And of course, I had to think about um, Philippe T walking between the twin towers, because when I thought about it, it he was walking. He, he, was, he was introducing the image of death to the Twin Towers right when they were built. 
and we all know what how the Twin Towers ended up, ended up as ground zero, which is one of the major images of death that, that we have in our culture right now. And, and maybe this is why the this German acrobat moment of walking or, or, or kind of uh, practicing a spectacle of death be, be because because the, the, the whole the whole tension that created by walking on a tightrope is is if if is she gonna fall or not is she gonna die or not this is a spectacle of death what happens when the spectacle of death is happening over where there's death all around when there's a complete destruction of of a civilization uh, beneath her but the origin of the terms uh, surprisingly is is uh, from the military is a uh, is a moment where uh, the a battle uh, or a war begins the hour zero um, originally from the first world war with this we will leave you for now and let you listen to the first part of Danigal's radio play In his novel, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, Milan Kundera writes about Stalin's son, Yakov, who was captured by the Germans during World War II. Yakov was imprisoned in a camp together with a group of British officers. Having to share toilets, the officers resented Stalin's son leaving a mess behind him. They didn't want to have their toilets smeared with shit, even if it was the shit of the son of the most powerful man on earth. When they brought the matter to his attention, Yakov took offense and repeatedly refused his cleaning duty. Yakov argued and fought and cursed, but to no avail. Feeling utterly humiliated, he desperately ran out, threw himself on the electric barbed wire fence surrounding the camp, and died. Was he, writes Kundera, who bore on his shoulders a drama of the highest order as fallen angel and son of God, to undergo judgment not for something sublime, but for shit? Were the very highest of drama and the very lowest so vertiginously close? Rejection and privilege, happiness and woe. No one felt more concretely than Yaakov how interchangeable opposites are, how short the step from one pole of human existence to the other is. Can proximity cause vertigo? It can. When the North Pole comes so close as to touch the South Pole, the Earth disappears, and man finds himself in a void that makes his head spin and beckons him to fall. Vertiginous, a radio play by Danny Gall. Part One, Camilla. A yellowed postcard, dated 1946, shows a photo of a woman walking on a tightrope, holding a balancing pole. The rope is stretched over the bombarded city of Cologne. The young acrobat, who was years later identified by an eyewitness as Margareta Zimmermann, is seen carefully walking toward the camera. Her straight gaze suggests concentration of both body and mind. In order to not lose balance, she avoids looking down at the ruins of Hoemacht Square, where a group of people has gathered to watch the spectacle in the sky. They, too, 
looking up, are avoiding the sight of the complete destruction that surrounds them. Margareta Zimmermann, whose stage name was Camilla Meyer III, was an acrobat in the Camilla Meyer troupe. The High Wire Circus Troupe, named after the legendary Camilla Meyer I, was founded in 1943 by the Jewish acrobat Ruth Hempel, whose stage name was Camilla Meyer II. Because the troupe was founded by a Jewish woman and directed by a political dissident, the journalist and performer Hans Zimmer, it was banned shortly after its founding. The troupe resumed activity at the end of the war, performing dangerous open-air shows over Germany's ruined cities in the aftermath of Germany's zero hour. Zero hour is a military term that indicates the beginning of a war or a time when a great battle is set to begin. However, for Germany, May 8, 1945, the day of the Third Reich's unconditional surrender and the official end of World War II, the phrase offers an absolute break with its past and an opportunity for a radical new beginning to what was a military, but more importantly, a complete moral defeat. In April of 1948, while visiting the ruins of Rumerberg, Frankfurt's ancient city square, the writer Max Frisch witnessed one of the Camilla Meyer troops' spectacles. The death walk of Camilla Meyer. It is a very young girl who fulfills the great oath to the deceased not once, but night after night. Slowly, she rises from the reddish rubble, a white pole in her hands. Slowly, foot by foot, she climbs up into the night. Without a net under the rope, that is the unique thing. When she misses and falls, silently, a dull thud in the rubble, almost inaudible. A brittle crack of the shattering pole, nothing else. A thin and incredulous outcry from a thousand spectators, some rising, some remaining seated. A friendly report in the press, a report with picture, a strange lifelong memory for individuals, a good death, a single death. A death of one's own, better than death in the camp, better than being shot without eyewitnesses, better than slowly starving and rotting in a guarded mine. A personal death, a playful death, a human death. But she doesn't fall. Stätte, die Camilla Meyer Truppe bei der Arbeit. 
In the fall of the same year that Max Frisch wrote these lines, Hans Zimmer, the journalist who was the head of the Camilla Meyer troupe, was sued for infringement of intellectual property. A young woman from Hamburg named Camilla Meyer accused him of the unlawful use of her name. Meyer claimed that she was the one and only Camilla Meyer and that the famous acrobat Camilla Meyer the troupe was named after was only a stage name and that the real name of the acrobat was Charlotte Witte, also known as Lotta. The real Camilla Meyer was the daughter of the famous French-born German circus acrobat Camillo Meyer, also known as Napoleon of the Skies. Following in her father's footsteps, Camilla started tightrope walking already as a child. She was only 12 years old when Camillo took her on tour in 1934. During their visit to the city of Stetten, he discovered Charlotte Witte, a local 15-year-old daughter of a plumber and a talented acrobat. Camillo was stunned by the young Charlotta's performance, and after seeing her effortlessly standing on the 50-meter high pole, he made up his mind to make her the world's greatest circus acrobat. In the following years, while the real Camilla Meyer left her circus career to help the war effort by serving in the Reichsarbeitsdienst, a forced labor service that provided support for the German army, Lotta was becoming an international star. Adopted by Camillo, she started performing under the name of his real daughter, Camilla Meyer. When the Second World War was over, the real Camilla Meyer decided she wanted to resume her career as a circus acrobat. She was a high-wire artist who performed neck riding a dangerous circus art of ziplining between two poles of buildings while hanging from the neck. Her dream was to take a neck ride from Hamburg's Heiligengeistfeld Towers, the massive concrete bunker meant to protect the city from the Allies' firebombs, all the way down to the Althof, one of the world's oldest circuses. But first, she had to claim her name back as Camilla Meyer. Over the target, the Americans found an enormous amount of smoke rising from the fires caused in the RAF nitrate a few hours earlier. However, they went in and proved that there are certain kinds of hamburgers they don't like. When Hans Zimmer received the court summons for Camilla Meyer's lawsuit, he immediately issued a letter to her and a copy of it to the press. In this three-page letter, Ornamented with a delicate illustration of a dancer balancing on a rope held by two doves, Zimmer describes his relationship with Camilla's father, Camillo Meyer. I was wanted by the Gestapo. As a journalist, I criticized the regime. I was on the run. I arrived in this small village. That's where I met Camillo Meyer. He and his band were performing in the village arena. Camillo offered me shelter and a job which I happily took. Slowly, I worked my way up in the troupe from a simple worker to a manager. The work was good, but after a while, I started noticing that Camilio was very strict with his acrobats. I didn't pay much attention to it at first. 
But when it came to his star, Lotte, Charlotte, or by now she was known as Camilla, it looked like he was roughing her up more than what some people would call tough love. Zimmer wanted to help but couldn't do anything. You see, I was dependent on Camillo. He protected me from the regime. He was the one thing between myself and prison, or even a concentration camp. When I commented on his rough approach with his acrobats, he was calm, even cold. He said he was merely protecting them. I have to be tough. This is dangerous work. And Lotte, she's too young. Specifically, he said he was protecting Lotte, who was very young, and especially after what had happened to her in England. In 1940, Hans Zimmer left the troop. In the following year, Camillo Meyer was sentenced to three years in prison in Stetten. Zimmer recalls that during the trial, a number of young apprentice girls appeared on the witness stand. When asked to elaborate on the charges against Camillo or the nature of the girls' testimonies, Zimmer refused. When Camilla Meyer received the letter, she said contemptuously, This is what I call to air the dirty laundry. Zimmer took advantage of my father's imprisonment to take over the troop and name it Camilla Meyer. At the end of the trial, Zimmer agreed to drop the Meyer name, but only after my father went after him too. After the war, Camillo Meyer appeared in the East Zone with the Camillo Meyer Stratosphere Show. He told everyone that he had been a prisoner of war in a Soviet camp. The idea to call his act the Stratosphere Show came from the English press. In late August 1937, the troupe made a guest appearance in Clacton-on-Sea, a small resort town on the eastern shore of England, famous for its entertainment facilities. The press adored Camilla Meyer and gave her the nickname, the Stratosphere Girl. It was something new for the English to see young girls climbing up a 53-meter mast. Mast climbing, or Chinese pole, is the art of performing acrobatics while hanging from a vertical steel pole. Thousands of Londoners headed for the nearby seaside resort in the evening to admire the art. The high pole was performed without a safety net. Camillo Meyer tells the story of a performance that almost ended in tragedy. I checked the ropes that morning. If there was only the slightest damage to them, I would have the faulty stacks of ropes replaced immediately. It was half past seven in the evening and the show began. Over 20,000 people were standing in the square. 
I had to call the police to put the crowd in order. The Bobbies had a hard time pushing back the crowds. First, I did the nightly tricks with my girls, walking rope, sitting on a chair, baking pancakes in the air, playing cards, cycling. Then Lotte, otherwise known as Camilla Maya, or the Stratosphere Girl, as the Brits called her, climbed the 53-meter-high mast with a certainty that a sailor would envy and put her head in the loop. The loop was an aerial hoop usually about the size of a hula hoop suspended from the mast. The acrobat used to perform on it when reaching the top of the mast. There was silence in the white square. You could have had a pin drop. I looked into the faces of the people staring up. I saw fear and horror in their eyes. Many women could not bear to look. And then Lotte came sliding down the mast. An outcry of relief escaped from the audience. Now came the final act. Lotte had to go back to the top of the mast to do some freehand dance movements and then finally act a headstand. It was now dark. A red light illuminated the top of the mast. It was an eerily beautiful picture by the sea. It was still. There wasn't even a breeze. The music played softly. Suddenly, it seemed to me as if the top of the mast was tilting. I came closer. I had no doubt the mast was beginning to bend like a fishing rod. Lottie was hanging with one leg in the sling and the other was level with the mast. As the girl moved, the mast swayed like a reed in the wind. Part of the audience thought it was part of the act and applauded. Others screamed in fear. I rushed to the police with the rescue team. We saw the, with horror that all the ropes were cut and were slowly listening. I called the police for help. And in this situation, we didn't have time to think. Lotte never got out of the loop past the dead point. The dead point is the moment where the acrobat's body slows down in the air to almost full stop. The body looks as if it is weightless and creates an illusion as if it is frozen in the air. I called to her with the speaking trumpet to hold out and not get nervous. With all our strength, we hung on the ropes and pulled. In my mind, I saw bloody human corpses writhing on the floor in pain. The music stopped. The people fled wildly out of the danger area. The mast could have killed us all if it fell over. It straightened up inch by inch. Lotte was still in the loop. She couldn't hold out this position much longer. I begged the people not to let go of the ropes. I looked up into the sky. Up there in the red light, a little human hung as if lifeless and waited for rescue. At last, she managed to pull the device towards her and slip inside. Departure! I shouted. She shot down like a flash of red light and was caught. When I rushed over to her, 
Thick tears ran down her cheeks. She sobbed and threw herself on my chest. Someone cut our ropes. That was certain, but who and why? I ran to the police. I needed to find out who did it. Hit his face with my fists. My hair had turned completely gray in those few minutes. Eventually, the Scotland Yard officers arrested a 19-year-old mulatto and another three teenage rascals. Mulatto is a racial classification that refers to people of mixed African and European ancestry. It is considered to be outdated and offensive. Apparently, in the afternoon, the gang had cut ropes with razor blades to watch the must fall with the girl on it. On the next day, the manager of the Butlin Amusement Park, Mr. Stanley Wells, told a reporter about the event. It seems absurd that anyone could have a personal grudge against Miss Meyer, who has been here only a couple of weeks and does not speak English. We are completely at a loss to find any reason for the cowardly attempt. A British reporter later asked Camillo why he hadn't installed a safety net. He said that... A safety net robs the audience of the illusion. The public in England loves the thrill more than anything. A lot of money can be made in England with dangerous performances or so-called numbers. And if the girl really had broken her neck, continued the reporter. That would have been artless. She must reckon with that, said Camillo calmly. In 1938, the Camillo Meyer troupe returned to perform in Clacton-on-Sea. The park management appointed four guards to protect Lotta after she and Mr. Wells received a threatening letter. Printed in capital letters, it read, You stopped my attempt on the stratosphere, girl, but I will soon get her. Signed, The Acrophobian. The letter was post-stamped at Weybridge, a town 100 miles away from Clacton-on-Sea. It was followed by two telegraphs, which read, I meant my letter. Signed with the letter A. In the following years, Lotte continued to perform widely around the world as Camilla Meyer. On January 20th, 1940, she performed in the Deutschland Halle in Berlin for the first time in the circus show, People, Animals, Sensations. The Deutschland Halle was a gigantic convention hall commissioned in 1935 by the Nazi party for its assemblies. It was later destroyed during the Allied bombardments of Berlin. In what was to be Lotta's last performance, the 20-meter-high mast she was standing on broke. The stratosphere girl fell. She was 21 years old when she died. Vertiginous. Part 1. Camilla. Written and directed by Danny Gall. Narrated by Alex Martin. With Alexei Koroliov, Eva Plachenska, and David Warawa. Producer, Jean Drach.
Assistant Producer, Livia Heiss. A podcast production by Oh Wow. Music and archive material, Danny Gall. Together with, in order of appearance, Dan Novi, Ben Spatz, Gabriela Carnero de Cunha, Davide Deriu, Maria Auxiliadora Galvez Perez, Katrin Bucha Trantov, Trevor Paglian, Danny Gall. This is Podart by Ruth Anderwald, Leonhard Grant, and Sergio Edelstein. Spatial audio mix, Florian Grant. Recording and vocal support, Ethan Vincent. Production, Jean Drach, oh wow. Assistance, Laura Brechmann. On certain groundlessness in the framework of navigating dizziness together, supported by the Austrian Science Funds, FWF Peak AR 598, hosted by Centrum Focus Forschung at the University of Applied Arts, Vienna. My order is your dizziness. More soon.